Father, thank you for the amazing God of love that you are. Help us to recognize that more fully, that our hearts would be stirred more deeply, that we would walk away with something practical that can make a difference in our lives. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He stood out in the cold in bare rags. He, he was there for three days. He sometimes was on his knees bowing down. He was fasting and he, he was confessing his sins. And he was groveling, really, there in an ice-cold winter in Europe. You would never know that, that this man was a king. He was an emperor. Henry IV. He had traveled across the Alps. He had traveled with just his wife and a few companions in the dead of winter across the Alps, cold, shivering. And he got finally to his destination, which was where the Pope, Pope Gregory, lived. When he got there, he knocked on the door, and he had come for a purpose. You see, something had happened. Pope Gregory had uh, dethroned him and had excommunicated him and had put out this bull against him because of some of the things that he was doing. And it terrified this emperor because his princes were no longer supporting him. And he said, I've got to do whatever it takes to get the Pope's favor back again. And so he made this journey and he pounds on the door and he was told, wait out here. And so he waited. It, accounts tell us that he was barefoot in the snow with tattered rags on, waiting for three long days, fasting and hoping that maybe if he groveled enough, that, that maybe the Pope would grant him absolution. Maybe the Pope would grant him a place. You know, it's pretty crazy to, to think that a religious leader could become like this. In fact, the religious leader goes on, the, Pope Gregory went on to confide in others that he was, his role was to humble kings and to bring them low. Is that really a representative of what God is like. Sometimes we think that God is putting obstacles, that he's doing everything possible to keep us away from him, that he doesn't really want us to have a place with him. Have you ever felt that way before? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. Now last week we looked at this amazing story about how, well, why did God create this beautiful being named Lucifer in the first place? And, and why did this being look to God and, and somehow rebel by, by saying that God is holding something back from us, that he's actually selfish, and and I'm going to ascend. I want a higher place. That was what Lucifer was saying. I want to go higher. But I want to highlight something for you that takes place right before Revelation chapter 12. So open in your Bibles if you have it, or your cell phone if you have it, or just follow along as we read. Revelation chapter 11, the last verse of Revelation chapter 11 brings out something fascinating. Now, you have to realize that throughout the book of Revelation, there's a lot of sanctuary language. Sanctuary being what the temple was based on. It was in, Revelation, in, in Exodus 25 verse 8 when God said, Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you so that I can be with you. This sanctuary imagery comes into the book of Revelation, but you find... A, For example, in Revelation chapter 1, that that Christ is there walking among the candlesticks. And and all of the imagery is of the holy place in the sanctuary. But there was also a most holy place. Now notice what happens in Revelation 11 and verse 19. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, 
And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So suddenly there's a shift in Revelation at this point. And, and like we said last week, Revelation 12 to 14 are this pinnacle of Revelation that help us. They're like a lens that helps us to see what's going on in the rest of Revelation. So here you have right before this pinnacle happens that the sanctuary is open in heaven and the most holy place is where God's throne really was. This ark of the, notice it says covenant. The ark of, of God's faithful promise to his people that he will accomplish their salvation. This is what's open in heaven. And, and the language here, notice there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Anywhere else in the Bible that you can think of that you hear of an earthquake and thunderings and lightnings? What was that? Resurrection? Yeah, you see some of that at the resurrection. A lot, yeah, Mount Sinai, this language is drawn especially, it, it seems, from the language of Mount Sinai itself. Now, this is fascinating because as we look at the book of Revelation, it tells us in chapter 12, we read last week, verse 4, that Lucifer, this fiery red dragon, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. He convinces those to follow along with him and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, if we look over in verse, uh, jumping over to verse, sorry, verse 7. It, says, it describes the same scene. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a, what does it say? A place found for them any longer. There's, there's no longer a place in heaven. He, he tries with its polemics to argue about God's government not being just, but before long, the majority of heaven says, uh, let's not keep him here. And he is sent to earth, where last week we read about what took place in the Garden of Eden. God gave access to us to be able to have the freedom of choice of whether we would follow, want to follow Lucifer's government or our own. And unfortunately, we ate of that tree. Now, what happens right after that in, in, in Genesis chapter 3? Last week, we looked at how the promise is made by God that, that he will send a seed who will put enmity between Satan and the woman. And this amazing promise that he will crush the serpent's head while the serpent will wound his heel. But, but after this, what takes place with Adam and Eve? Are they allowed to, to keep eating of the tree of life and to stay in the Garden of Eden, this place called Pleasure? They were? No, they were, they were sent out of this place. They lost their place as well. And every time that we buy into Satan's lie, we lose our place. We lose that beautiful experience of what God has designed for us, of living in other-centered, self-sacrificing love. When we begin to, to seek to establish our own place, that's what Adam and Eve were doing. They, they ate of the fruit because they thought that they could reach a higher level, that they could hopefully ascend and become like a better being. That's what Lucifer lied to them about, Satan, the serpent. And because they were grasping for something, they actually lost what they had already been given by God. So the fascinating thing is that you find that, that Satan uses this trick on people throughout history. Obviously, uh, that's what we were just hearing about with the Pope and how he was 
uh, acting, and, and especially for, for Henry IV to recognize, well, we'll, we'll get back to that a little bit later on, but in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, it goes on to talk about how the woman is ready to give birth. And as the dragon stood before the woman, was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. This is a horrific picture, right? Here you have a massive dragon, fiery red dragon with all these heads and horns and crazy picture, ready to devour this seed, this promise that they've been looking for, they've been hoping for for so long. How did that take place? Well, right from the very beginning of Jesus' life. You read about this crazy guy named King Herod the Great. And, and Herod the Great, Caesar himself said, it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his children. Because you see, he did everything possible grasping to become the next ruler. He killed as many people as possible. And then when he was on the throne, he did everything possible to preserve his place. And in trying to preserve his place, he married this, this woman that he thought would give him favor with the Jews. He actually was somewhat a Jew himself, forced to, into that, his people had been forced to conversion, the Idumeans earlier on. But as he's this despotic king, he has children with this lady and he says he loves her. But later on, he ends up killing her children. Then he ends up killing her. And he ends up killing a lot of his children because... He's afraid that they're going to take his throne away from him. It's pretty crazy where we can bring ourselves by trying to preserve our place. Just look at John chapter 11. When Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and there should be this incredible rejoicing with the Pharisees. They should be saying, this is amazing. Finally, death has been conquered by our Messiah. Let's all go worship him. But instead, you know what they're saying? I believe it's verse 48. says, Now, if we don't stop this guy, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place. And because they were wanting to preserve their place, they went ahead and began to plot how to kill Jesus. You see, in the world today, we often think about how we can get to the next level, how we can progress further. Even as Christians, we might think, well, how can we get the world to follow Jesus? And maybe it'll help to get the government involved. Well, that's what we see taking place with Pope Gregory. It didn't work. When force, when, when the government becomes involved in religion, it is never a pretty picture. Because that is not how God's government operates. Let's keep reading what takes place here in Revelation chapter 12. It talks about this woman who gave birth to the child. Now, who is the woman who gave birth to the child? We talked about this last week. It's God's people, right? Old Testament, Isaiah 54, verse 5. I am, I, your maker, am your husband. And we'll look at some other language in the Old Testament. Then the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, he calls the church his bride. Revelation talks about that too. So here you have this woman who, there's no change. She's the same woman throughout. God's people are people of faith. There's no difference between genetic Israel and, and you and I sitting here today. All who believe, Paul says, are children of Abraham. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the gospel, you become a child of Abraham. So here you have uh, 
we'll go back to verse 5 of Revelation 12. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's good news. It skips over most of Jesus' life and focuses on the fact that he is now seated on the throne. He has a place. He has gone as a human being to the very throne of the universe. It's incredible to think that the God who took on our nature was able to ascend into heaven. And there is a place there for you and I too. Then it goes on to say, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a, what does it say? A place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And we'll look at this time period a little bit later on. But this time period is mentioned seven times in the Bible. But it's saying that this woman is going to flee into the wilderness where God has a place for her. And the same language is, is used later on. Look at verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, and this is the further casting down that takes place at the, the cross when, when all of the heavenly forces, uh, the evil heavenly forces are disarmed, like Colossians 2.15 says. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And we find this taking place. You see it in the book of Acts and you see it under Nero. You see it under these different Roman empires that are persecuting Christians. Verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Who provided that place? Okay, we've got to keep tracking. Who provided the place? God, it said, had prepared a place in the wilderness. Now it says she fled into the wilderness to her place. Remember, the place is provided for by God. And then notice what takes place. She's there in her place and that she might fly into, uh, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So there's two things I want you to notice here. Besides the fact that there's a place there. How does she get to this place? Two wings of an eagle. And what else do you notice? What is done for her in that place? She's nourished. And this is intimate language, like a mother with her baby. She is nourished there in the wilderness. All right, so this is really awesome. Do you remember that chapter 11, we saw the thunderings and lightnings and great hail, which referred us to Mount Sinai, which was where God gave the plans for the sanctuary which had the Ark of the Covenant and which in the Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? So check this out. Does God lead his people with wings like an eagle into the wilderness? Look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, you remember that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. They'd been in Egypt for 400 years. In the latter part of that, they were there as slaves. And God comes to them and, you know, to be honest, they're like, hey, Moses, you're making our lives more difficult. This is, this is hard on us, Moses. Maybe you should just go away. Stop talking to Pharaoh. But Moses continues to do what God tells him and God sends the plagues and And eventually, God provides for everybody who's willing to be brought out of Egypt. And then he describes what he's done. And you remember that as he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them to the Red Sea. And they think they're going to be squashed by the Egyptian army, but God provides a way through the Red Sea. And then 
They think that they're going to starve to death in the wilderness and God provides them manna. And then they think that, that they're not going to be able to drink, but God sweetens the water and, and then eventually God provides water from a rock. <laughs> and so in, in Exodus 19, look at what, what God says, starting in verse 3. It says, And Moses went up to God, and this is on Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. <laughs> uh, I carried you on eagles' wings. How you got here was that I carried you every step of the way. And that is how the church is nourished in the wilderness. That's how the church ends up in her place in the wilderness. And notice where he's bringing her. He's bringing his people to himself to be with me. He says, I brought you into the wilderness so you could be with me, so we could be together. Then verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. Now, obey in Hebrew, I think Leonard might be the one that, first one that reminded me of this. In Hebrew, the word Shema is here, like in the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, obey, those are the same word in Hebrew. So here you can read this as obey, or you can also read it as to hear, right? So now therefore, if you will indeed hear my voice and keep my covenant, that, that's my, my promise of my steadfast faithfulness to you, that I will not fail you, that I will provide for you, that I will be there for you no matter what. If you will keep that covenant... Then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God is looking for people who value his promises, who value his provision in their life, who say, all right, God, I'm, I'm a slave to all this stuff. I've got a lot of problems in my life, but if you'll take me on eagle's wings, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you rescue me too? You might feel today like you're totally lost, like this message has nothing to do with you, but I want to tell you that if that's how you're feeling, this message has everything to do with you. Because Jesus is in the business of rescuing, of taking on eagle's wings. Now, here's the, the beautiful thing about this. If you go over to Jeremiah chapter 2, okay, we're going to have to do some quick Bible flipping. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2. When Jeremiah is recording what takes place here at Mount Sinai, he says something really beautiful about what's taking place here. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2 says this, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. What's a betrothal? The engagement. That's like a, a Hebrew word for the engagement. To be married. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. You get what he's saying? He said, I brought you into the wilderness for a betrothal, for an engagement, so that we could become one. I brought you to myself. Then if you flip over to Hosea chapter 2, Hosea, this, this amazing book about how God pursues his people, even he has her, him marry this wife who ends up being, a, she's a prostitute, and she keeps going back to her prostitute life again and again, and God just keeps chasing after her. So Hosea uses that experience to explain how God feels about you, how God feels about me. And he also ties it into the wilderness experience. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. 
What does it mean to allure somebody? It's a, it's a romantic idea. It's, it's to win somebody's love, to win somebody's affection. And when it's a good, loving God who's doing the alluring, this is a beautiful thing. And we'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I'll take her into the wilderness and I'll nourish her. I'm going to allure her into the wilderness. I will provide for my people. Then it goes on to say, Uh, Let's skip down to to verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. You're not going to be focused on the Baals anymore, but you're going to be focused on me as your husband. And then it goes on, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, or masters, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Then look down at verse 19. I will betroth you. Are you seeing a tie here? I will betroth you. When does the betrothal take place? When God rescues his people out of slavery and brings them into the wilderness. Not necessarily the the most beautiful place, not necessarily an easy place, but when he rescues them out of slavery and into the wilderness, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. You know, devout Jews actually repeat that those two verses whenever they go to pray and they then respond to that betrothal by reciting the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Hear, hear the promises of God. So, so how is this a betrothal? I mean, what does that really look like? It, it seems like a pretty miserable experience that the Israelites went to. And when they went to Mount Sinai, they didn't really get what was going on. And maybe I haven't really gotten it. Just recently, I was doing some study on this. Have you ever looked into what takes place at a Jewish wedding? Have any of you ever been to a Jewish wedding? So at a Jewish wedding, the bride, the first thing she does is she goes to the mikvah. That's the ceremonial cleansing where she goes and she dips down in the water and she washes to be ceremonial cleansed. Look at what happens in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 10. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. It says, Consecrate yourself. Wash your clothes. Cleanse yourself. Consecrate yourself. Uh, this is a picture like the mikvah, like we see la- later in, in Revelation where it says that the bride has made herself ready for her garments have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. As we focus on the love of Jesus, it has a way of cleansing our hearts. When we recognize His non-condemning love in our lives, it cleanses us and changes our hearts from wanting what we wanted before. So the first thing that you would see at a, a a Jewish wedding is the mikvah. The, the bride would go through that. But then I learned something else. That there's, when the bride and groom, when they go up to the front and they're standing at the front, you know, we talk about them standing at the altar, but at a Jewish wedding, they're standing under a chuppah. Right? So there's this, this covering called a chuppah that they're standing under while they get married. This is really exciting because if you look down, in 19 verse 17, look at what it says. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood, and literally in the Hebrew it says, under the mountain. Right, so they're, they're there, and on the mountain is this cloud and fire and great glory, and, and they're standing right there under at the foot of the mountain, and those mountains just jump straight out of the plain. And so they're right there 
under the glory of God. And then you read about how in the wilderness that they are under the cloud during the day and that they have a, a pillar of fire by day. It shelters them from the sun in the day and it gives them that uh, fire at night. So you have this, this picture that could be seen as a chuppah there. Well, there's something else that's important in a Jewish wedding. So first you have the mikvah, the bath for the bride. Then you have the chuppah, which is the, the covering that represents to them God's providing care for them. And then you have the ketubah. Now the ketubah, what's a ketubah? Well, you, you know of it, it's similar to vows. When you get up there and you, you say these vows to each other, well, they have a ketubah. That's two documents that are, are signed by them, and they're usually really beautifully designed. They'll have artists design them, and, and they have a big ceremony to sign the ketubah. So immediately, after going through these things, God then speaks from the mountain, and he writes a ketubah for his people. He, he writes down his beautiful law as applied to his people, his law of love in these ten, what we call commandments. But did you know the Old Testament doesn't call them commandments? It says these are the ten words, devar. Or you can look at it as the ten promises. I remember translating this for the first time in Hebrew, in my Hebrew, basic Hebrew class. And as I'm translating it, like, why do we always say, thou shalt not? It looks to me like it says, you will. She says, well, yeah, you could translate it that way too. Did you know that these are promises to you of what God wants to do for you? And we know that because when you come to the new covenant, God says, I'm going to write my law on your heart. You'll delight to do my will. I am going to change you from the inside out. That's why force and legislation does not work to promote Christian values. Because only a change of heart will change the world. Only the grace of Jesus Christ will change our hearts. And Romans chapter 13 tells us that, the, verse 10 says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Really, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they are promises of the love that we are going to share with God as he writes this law on our heart. And the love that he wants us to share together as a united people, as, as a human social network on this planet. He doesn't plan for the strife to continue like it is today. He plans to put an end to it and to make us into a loving human family once again. So, how do we really begin to experience that? Well, there's one more thing. One more thing that takes place, and that is the sign, the oath, I believe it is in Hebrew, that, that is at a Jewish wedding. And the sign is important, and today it takes the form that you're familiar with. They put on their wedding bands, their wedding rings. And here, in Exodus chapter 20, you have a sign where, where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, where in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Here's my sign. Exodus chapter 31 says, this is the sign between you and me. And Ezekiel repeats that, that this is the sign that I'm going to sanctify you, that that you're going to know me. The sign is the Sabbath. And that beautiful picture for, for a slave who's been working day in and day out. And do you know that when Moses went to Pharaoh and was like, hey, could we have three days off? Pharaoh's like, no, <laughs> you can't have three days off. Get back to your building. And you're lazy, so here's more bricks to make. And you also have to collect the, the straw as well. 
And they go out in the wilderness and here's this new person that they're falling in love with. And when they go through the engagement process, he says, oh, and by the way, every week, the sign between me and you, I want for you to rest. And I want for you to give rest to every person in your sphere of influence. You know how beautiful that is for a slave to say, wow, This God that I am falling in love with, he wants for me not to be enslaved to all of the busyness, all of the craziness in this world. And he wants for me to have time with him. God gives us this beautiful law of love that's that's existed throughout throughout eternity, I believe. Because look at what God says in 1 John 4, verse 8. God says, God is love. 1 John 4, 16 says the same thing. And then, we just read Romans 13, verse 10, says that love is the fulfillment of the law. So if God is love, and the law represents love, and you fulfill the law, then do you see that the law is simply a transcript of who God is? It just represents His loving character. The law is such a beautiful thing in our lives. And that's why when this woman is taken out into the wilderness, go back to Revelation chapter 12, She's taken out into the wilderness. She's given wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place that she is nourished for times and half a time from the present times, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Verse 17 goes on to say this after the dragon fails of getting her in the wilderness. And the dragon was enraged with a woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of of Jesus Christ. This is the the first time in Revelation for 12 chapters there has been no mention of the commandments. There's been no mention of the law of God. But in chapter 11, suddenly we have this sanctuary open and we see that God has a place. And in that place, the Ark of the Covenant, there is the Ten Commandment law, which represents His law of love that Jesus said can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so here's the key. The key thing for you and I is that in the end, there's going to be different groups of people. There's going to be those who have no place. Look over in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Now this is after the second resurrection of the wicked dead. When they're resurrected, they come before the throne and suddenly there's this judgment scene where suddenly they see every single feature and detail of their entire life. Can you imagine that? How horrific that would be to suddenly face all the shame, all the guilt if you didn't turn your life over to Jesus. And in that moment, it says, They saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Friends, this is the most horrific verse possibly in the Bible. To have no place, this is what hell is like. To, to suddenly realize that, that the entire universe is, is filled with selfless love and, and you had decided to turn away from that. This gift of love that God wanted to give you in order to give to the world. And you've chosen to seek your own place. To look out for number one. To 
look out for yourself above others. And suddenly you find out, there's no place for me. I love how the book, well, I shouldn't say I love, but I think the, the book Steps to Christ describes this really clearly. Steps to Christ, page 17, says, The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there, every heart responding to the heart of infinite love, would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. He would long to be hidden from him who is its light and the center of its joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. This is the picture. There's, there's no place found for them and it's, it's like hell for them. It's, it's the worst possible experience. And we see this because we see what happens in the life of Jesus. Now, the life of Jesus starts out as this beautiful picture because here you have the king of the universe who had a throne, who had a place, who could have just chosen to stay there. But he chose to tabernacle among men like John chapter 1 says. He came and he became flesh for you and I. Desire of Ages depicts it this way. It says that Jesus did not count heaven a place to be desired while we were lost. He left the heavenly courts for a life of reproach and insult and of death and shame. He who was rich in heaven's priceless treasure became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. We are to follow in the path that he trod. And then goes on, uh, if, if you, you look at the life of Jesus, after he stepped down from the throne, he chose what we talked about last week in Philippians chapter 2. He chose to humble himself to the point of being a man. When people are like, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus. He says, do you know, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I'm homeless. I've got no place. Jesus willingly gave up his place so that you could have a place. And then when he went to the cross in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he, he drinks that cup of the woe and suffering and shame that you and I have chosen, the guilt that you and I have chosen, he freely drank it so that you don't have to experience condemnation. And as he was there on the cross, people are saying, save yourself, save yourself. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went through the experience of hell for you and me. The experience of not having a place, of not knowing the way forward, of, of laying down his life and saying, okay, I give up my place for eternity. If only there's a possibility that those people sitting in Templeton might be able to live with me forever. But not just you. It's for the people on the freeway out there too. For the people in Paso Robles, Atascadero, people in China, people in the Middle East. Jesus gave his life so that they could have life. And so the key for you and I is 
Will we seek to establish our place? Will we try to ascend higher? Will we try to make our lives the best? Will we try to push others down? Or will we go out of our way to make sure that others have a place? To make sure that others have a voice? To speak out for those who don't have a voice? To make sure that they have a place? Will we invite them to the ultimate place that God is leading us to? To be with Him forever. You know, King Henry was there pounding at that door, groveling, hoping that maybe the Pope would grant him absolution. And the Pope delighted in that. He delighted to humble him. And sometimes we picture that that's the way God is, that he's trying to keep us out of getting back to that place, that he really doesn't want us to be there. But Luke 12, verse 32 says, Don't be afraid, little flock, for it's my Father's delight to give you the kingdom. It's his great joy to give you the kingdom. That's what he wants for you more than anything else. And then Revelation chapter 3. Let's close with this. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. If you have your Bible, go there with me. After talking about this church that Jesus says, you know, this church makes me sick. It's the people of the judgment. And they think that they have it all together. They don't recognize their desperate need for me. And so in verse 20, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The picture of God is not one that you have to go pounding on His door. He's the one seeking. He's the one knocking. He's the one looking for you today and every day. And He won't stop. And He just wants to know, will you open the door? He says, if anyone, that's a lot of people, if anyone hears my voice, if he hears my promises, if he hears my covenant, if he recognizes I'm calling you my segula, my treasure, I want to bring you to myself and I want to write my law in your heart so that you can truly love. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. See, he, he suddenly flips it. He's like, hey, if you open the door now, And you let me come in and nourish you. You take that time to say, Jesus, okay, I'm going to sit down with you. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you in. I, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to give you time. If you get to know him, he says, not only will I come in fellowship with you, but you'll also fellowship with me. I will become the host for you. And this is an amazing host because look at verse 21. Don't miss this. To him who overcomes, the, the one who opens the door of his heart, the one who lets me bear him on eagle's wings, the one who lets me write his law on their hearts, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Guys, I don't know how to comprehend this. The God of the universe has designed a place for you to sit on his throne with him. How incredible is God? Rebels who deserve not to have a place. And he says, welcome in. I want you to be with me forever. In fact, I want you to come all the way up and sit with me on my throne. As we close, I just want to play a song for you that we played at my wedding. Uh, at our wedding, Leah and I. And I remember that moment when, when Leah came walking down the aisle to know that, that we were going to no longer have to live in separate places, but we were going to be together. It's a picture of what God wants for you and I. And he's knocking at the door of your heart saying, will you let me make your heart a home? 
and I'll give you peace and joy, and, and I'll take care of you in this life, and I'll write my law in your heart, and then I'm taking you to a place to be with me and my Father on our throne throughout eternity. Father, really, we want to ask that you would come and make our heart your home. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, that that you really want to choose us to be your bride. That you want to choose us to be with you forever. But Father, help us to forget about our needs. Help us to truly believe that your law of self-sacrificing love is the only way to really find a place on this planet or the in the future, that it's only as we willingly take up the cross and follow after you in laying down our lives, not in our strength, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, letting that law be written in our hearts, that we'll begin to notice that we have a place, that we're beginning to have a a, a bigger social network, people that we can be there for and love and reach out to and uplift Lord God, if anybody here today is feeling like they don't have a place, I pray that they would know that that place has already been provided for them in Jesus. Thank you for promising that you have gone to prepare a place for us, that where you are, there we may be with you also. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.